We're live talking about the latest Reddit stock picks. Um, no, just kidding. <laughs> we're going to do quick reverse order intros with everybody, uh, just in case you were worrying why we didn't start early. Uh, we, we already made our trades. Um, going backwards, Larry, please talk about, share with us what you're talking about and where you're calling in from. I am talking about all sorts of stuff. Bitcoin on balance sheets, earnings, news, whatever you guys bring up, you know, that's cool. And I am at Philadelphia someplace. Woohoo! Thanks for learning out to him. All right, Michelle, where are you calling in from and what are we going to talk about today? Hey, calling in from Seattle. And we're going to just talk a little bit about empathy in business and customer experience. Woohoo! One of our favorite topics. And of course, Nigel, where are you calling in from? And thank you for being so late, uh, late in the night. Uh, let us know uh, what you're talking about as well. Uh, I'm calling in from London, Nigel Baz, and I'm going to be talking about digital business transformation and the tech changes that help establish companies uh, progress. All right. And your new book, too. So I'm going to talk a little Absolutely. bit there. So. All right. yep. very, very cool. Well, hey, we're going to start the show. Uh, for those following around, this show has been sponsored by Robots and Pencils. And more importantly, uh, we've got some wonderful guests all over the world. And we're going to start the show now. Let's do the count. All right. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. And breaking news, this year he's got his new book coming out, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, sure to be another bestseller. He is a regular television, business, and technology news contributor. You see him almost daily on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, and Bloomberg. In my humble opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar, co-founder. More importantly, the number one person to talk to if you're looking for inspiration on social media. Uh, he's followed by CMOs, CEOs, CFOs, CIOs, and of course, all business leaders and tech folks. Uh, more importantly, uh, we're not here to talk about ourselves. We're here to talk about our awesome guests, uh, guests that have written some great books, uh, really understand what's going on in the marketplace, start, you know, startup leaders, early adopters, everything. Who do we have first here, Bala? It's our privilege. We have one of the best and brightest digital pioneers in the world as our first guest. Nigel Laws, the CEO of Publicist Sapient, the digital business transformation company focused on helping companies survive and thrive in a world that's increasingly digital. More than 20 years with the company, Nigel has acted as a strategic advisor on complex transformation initiatives with clients across geographies and a range of industries. Named by Consulting Magazine as top 25 global leader, Nigel advises some of the world's largest businesses in their transformation initiatives. He's a member of the executive committee of the Publicist Group and serves as global lead of digital business transformation. He's the president of IPA, Institute of Practitioners in Advertising and board director of Marketing Society and the inductee in the BIMA Digital Hall of Fame. He, uh, Nigel is a regular contributor and, and broadcast in print media, including BBC, Bloomberg, CNBC, CNN, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, and all the other major publications. He's also author of numerous articles on business transformation, technology, brand experience, and culture. Nigel authored and is the Wall Street Journal bestselling and Washington Post bestselling author of Digital Business Transformation, How Established Companies Sustain Competitive Advantage from now to next, which is what we're going to talk about in our segment. Uh, welcome, Nigel, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Vala and Ray. Great to be back with all both of you again. 
Thank you, hey, sir. thanks so much for coming back on the show. Uh, more importantly, you've got this awesome new book and it's really taking apart what's important for digital business transformation. Um, I love the cover. I'm trying to figure out what's underneath the iceberg. Well, we I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hold it up like, like right yeah. <laughs> Beautiful <laughs> book. <laughs> Beautiful book. It's on order on my end. Uh, but more importantly, why did you decide to write this book and why now? I think we, you know, it, it, the pandemic has proved one thing, right? People always knew, businesses always knew that digital was important, but it went from being tangential to existential. You don't get this right, and you might not actually see the next few years uh, in the way that actually uh, uh, the business is actually done. So when a publisher approached me and said, look, you've been working in this space for so long. Oh, my God, yeah. You know why not? Why not take a shot at writing a book and put that knowledge to use uh, across so many of uh, uh, of, the, of the people who would benefit from it? And, and 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 that's that was how it came about. You know, it's incredible to think uh, about this time last year. You know, maybe a little bit later around March timeframe. You know, the world flip of a switch went to decentralized. Yeah. And and digital only. Yeah. So as you said, it was no longer nice to have. Uh, yep. It was it was an absolute necessity. But what a blind spot business leaders had in terms of understanding the power of decentralization right. and the power of digital. Well, how, your clients, how do they you know, what what did you find was, you know, top of mind for them as they spent arguably, I guess, it depends on their maturity, perhaps weeks and months just trying to stabilize their, their business, given this new construct due to the pandemic. You know what was really interesting, right? The conversations always center around the fact that basically you had a, a CEO who's trying to drive growth or protect the business by by reducing costs. Any and every one of those focuses, interestingly enough, were absolutely going to be driven by technology. And that was the realization. The employee experience, powered by technology. How you cut costs, powered by technology. How are you going to drive growth, powered by technology. The luxury company CEO said to me, you know, there was no fallback plan, no contingency plan that planned for every one of our 400 stores not to have a physical presence in the world and only be able to sell digital. And I pick luxury because it's one of those industries that you don't think about as being digital first. You know, they, they pride themselves on the right. physical experience, the, right. the being in the store, the expensive streets, the Man Avenue, the Rodeo drives. And actually, all of a sudden, the only way for somebody to buy your product uh, was online. And all of a sudden, the question they were starting to ask themselves is, are, is my experience online convey the same kind of feel of luxury that my physical store does, right? And then people start asking themselves questions like, why do I need to go into a bank to open a bank account when I don't go into an Apple store to open an iTunes account, right? And, and you know, I mean, you start yourself asking yourself all these obvious questions that actually have huge implications for businesses. And, and I think we're seeing that right now. You know, we're starting to see people say, well, I may never want to go back to the office again, or I'm going to go back to the office, you know, a day a week, two days a week when I need people, but I'm actually quite comfortable working from home and working remotely. And, and I think businesses look at that. You know, one of the advantages that your clients have partnering with you is, uh, you know, uh, your company has recognized that to achieve optimal speed, you have to design for movement. So right. like my company had 55,000 people literally overnight work from home because we're a cloud first company. So, sure. it, so our tech stack was designed for mobility and movement. And right. so part of partnering with a digital pioneer agency is you can ensure that your infrastructure and even more importantly your culture and your talent is ready yep. to make those pivots 
And I think that's one of the key lessons when I, you know, collaborate with my clients is just making sure that they think about continuously designing for movement and minimizing friction so that they're not caught off guard when they have to make a light switch change like we did last year. Absolutely. And I think that the investment in digital as a strategic competitive advantage, I think, was the recognition. You know, people often thought about technology in the context of cost and keep the cost down and keep the risk low. And now I think the, the shift from that kind of IT orientation to technology to digital is actually this could be a real competitive differentiator. Parker Harris, the co-founder of Salesforce, was one of the people that endorsed my book. And you know, I was having this conversation with him and many of our partners that people started to recognize, hey, this is not about like the infrastructure, like the electricity that keeps our lights off. You know, this is about the stuff that basically could make a difference you know, whether our business is actually relevant in a world that is increasingly digital across every dimension of our company, right? And, and all dimensions of our company, all of our partners, uh, you know, across our ecosystem are all starting to come to that same kind of realization. You know, when you think about what digital companies do well, right? They have a real clear focus on the user. What is the user, what problem are we here to actually solve? And because they have that clarity of focus, they're also clear how they create value for themselves through creating value for the users. And then they do three things, which the most digital companies come naturally, right? Focus on the experience. Think about engineering in the context of a real capability that can differentiate rather than IT. And lastly, build the business to constantly evolve, be in a kind of constantly iterative state using data and, and kind of learning about the business, right? And if you think about most established businesses, they didn't grow up in that world. So the question for them is, how do you build this DNA? How do you actually start to generate this you know, kind of way of working that allows them to also continue to sustain value? Because it would be a horrible world, let's face it, right? If all of us were only buying everything from Amazon, you know, 10 years from now, right? Like, I mean, that's the only company you could buy from because, you know, they've moved into every adjacent business. And you know what? The world's gone basically like, that's it. Like you got one store, you know, it, it's not a fun place to be. So then the question yeah. I started asking myself is, how do we actually make sure the businesses that have been around for a long time that we love and brands that we love actually make this transition? And, and so what I started writing the book was like, what are those elements that you need if you're an established company to start to adapt in order to drive that? And the acronym I came up with is called SPEED. And speed basically as the word is, is kind of also implying what you need to be. You need to be fast and you need to be agile, right? But the acronym says, you know, strategically the S, you need to be really focused on what strategy you're gonna focus on to unlock value where. Too many established businesses are trying to do too many things to too many people and they become nothing to anybody, right? So what's that strategic focus? What do you put here to do? The P stands for product. This idea that you're actually gonna be in a constantly evolving world where you have to think about your business, not in projects which begin and end, but as a product that is constantly evolving, right? The E is experience, which we've already talked about. How you design delightful customer experiences, employee experiences that people want to use. The, the second E is engineering. So thinking about engineering as an unlock to be able to fulfill those ambitions you have of creating the experience. And then the, and the D is data and AI. So constantly learning about your business so that it's never done. It's in constant beta, you know, you're, you're constantly evolving. And, and, and that kind of rate of change and pace of change is hard for CEOs to get their heads around, right? Because they're thinking, well, when is transformation gonna end? And I'm like, well, it kind of doesn't if you do it right. It's a journey, it's not a destination. You're never gonna have been transformed. You're gonna have to continue to evolve. 
That's a great, clever acronym. Uh, I, I, I will remember that and use it. That's great. Thank Sorry, you. Ray, I think you're on mute. Um, no problem. Those are great points on speed in terms of what you're talking about. Uh, but hey, here's the interesting thing. You also spent a lot of time talking about this is not about technologies, right? You've got to really yeah. think back about how you're going to, I think it was defend, differentiate, yeah. as well as uh, disrupt those markets. And yeah. I think that's the mindset that a lot of folks have missed. I mean, I think a lot of people are like, oh, we'll put a website on, we'll do a digital channel, it's going to be great, right? But they totally missed out that there's a lot more behind that. Let's talk about that and really some of those pieces that those nuggets that you've talked about in the book. I think that's 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 a great question, Ray, because actually, you know, you have to make a choice, right? You have to be clear what kind of business you're in. So if you're at Disney, right, and you continue to do more of the same, you never make the move to Disney Plus and, and take the bold <laughs> move to basically say, hey, we're going to take off our content from Netflix and we're going to make basically invest in a platform that allows us to sustain. And in hindsight, right, it looks very obvious uh, as to why a business might want to do that. But when you think about it in terms of making the actual choice, you're worried about cannibalization of your existing revenue streams. You're worried about the people that you currently partner with. All of those things really are concerning if you're Disney, right? And you make the choice because you realize, hey, we've been around for a hundred some odd years. And if we want to be around for the next hundred, we've got to invest in something that allows us to continue to be relevant. And so for me, the defend, you know, differentiate and disrupt is a frame to ask yourself as an organization, what are you trying to do? And it might be in one area, you're simply trying to defend. You know what? We, we're in a good spot. We just want to protect our turf while we figure something else out somewhere else, right? In other spots, you say, you know what? There's a lot of people doing some stuff similar to us, but we want to be different. And then for times, you want to say, we want to do totally, we want to take a big leap. Sorry. No, that's a great point, right? No, no, we, we, I woke up one day uh, in March and was watching Walmart's actions, right? I mean, these folks have 200 million shoppers uh, per week, right, in their stores. And they suddenly got it. They're like, we need Walmart plus. We need a yep. membership model. We need to buy an ad network. Let's just go buy TikTok, see what happens, right? Yeah. I mean, that transformation is so hard to do. And it, it's interesting to see that companies are starting to figure it out, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and when Nigel talks about like Amazon being maybe the only place you go shop in the future, I think about the thesis of your book, Ray, and digital duopolies where 100 companies across 50 sectors will dominate the market. And so how do you compete in the world where, you, you know, there may be two players that really, uh, you know, own the market? Um, but, but so my question to you, Nigel, uh, you know, a CEO of an established company comes to you. This is probably a conversation you have every day. And they say, Nigel, help us become a digital company. What are they asking you? What, do they know what that means? <laughs> or, or how do you guide the conversation so that yeah, and, and, yeah, and, you know, they have your definition and your vision of what a digital company looks like? Well, and this is actually where, you know, you know, Ray's question from earlier also is related, right? Where often the answer is expected to be context technology, and many times it's not. It's a context of decision making. It's a context of culture. It's in the context of how you actually choose to organize your business along the lines of those speed capabilities that I was talking about that allows you to start different decisions than perhaps you might otherwise make. And what's really interesting in the way that these conversations happen is they're almost always grounded in the context of the stuff they are trying to do. Uh, they're grounded in the context of uh, what the you know, company is trying to achieve, like we're trying to be more efficient or we're trying to drive growth or we're trying to create a better customer experience. And the recognition is, well, if you want to achieve that objective, this combination of capabilities that we're talking about is, uh, is a critical part of how you go about doing that. 
Yeah, that is a very, very important point that you've got there because that's kind of what shifts and creates that shift in that marketplace. Uh, the, the other question, though, is like as you're talking to these leaders, do they realize uh, the level of investment? Like it's not a one-time project because you talked about that earlier. And mm-hmm. a lot of folks like, well, put it in the budget. The board said do right. it. Well, check it off. Yeah. It's good. And and yeah. and it's, I mean, it's it's a cycle. I mean, there's a big cycle yeah. required to make this happen. Uh, yeah. where, what have you seen? Like, what lessons do you have for other leaders to make that case to their board that this isn't once and done? This is the true cultural shift that that's required for the business to even survive. Yeah, I think the first thing I, I we almost always talk about, right, is think about this in the context of the outcomes you want to achieve, not just the outputs. And as those outcomes continue to evolve, you have to think about yourself as constantly evolving in that kind of consistent beta form. But the big questions you almost always get is where do we start? It's such a big complex topic. It's such a big complex problems. Where do we where do we start? And then once you start, how do you actually sustain that momentum and how do you sustain that you know, because the rate of change is increasing and the scale and the magnitude of change is increasing. So how do you maintain and sustain that, you know, kind of change on a continuous basis when you're you're used to a project beginning and a project ending and you're not used to kind of uh, you know, evolving in this way? Right? So the biggest thing we almost say is almost every leader understands what they need to do. For us, we believe the magic is in the how. Lots of people can tell you you need to be digital. Lots of people can tell you, you know, you need to adopt technology. But how do you do that? What is the the distinction? You've done it before. You you guys have done it before, right? It's not just talking about the theories and the academic stuff. I mean, you guys have done it for all different types of industries across all different types of business models. I mean, that's a very powerful piece. That's the shift, you know, like that's the shift. And when you talk to, you know, our, our clients, right, we often say, look, even our industry, the consultant, consulting industry, the technology industry is changing very rapidly, right? What we used to be able to do 20 years ago is not going to cut it for us, you know, 20 years from now. So our own businesses are having to evolve and change on a consistent basis. You're kind of also right to your question, eating your own dog food and having said, hey, we were the people that launched some of the world's first online banks. We built some of the world's first equities trading platforms when people used to stare at TV screens and call a broker. And if you were like me and you didn't have much money back then, you were like call number 19. He was like leaving you there and you were watching the stock price on TV go lower and lower and lower and lower. And you're like, man, by the time he gets to me, what, the reason I'm going to call him is gone because I've already lost everything because like I can see it happening for me. And then we said, you know, what if you could trade equities real time? And what if you could pick a seat on your plane yourself rather than standing in a long check-in yeah. line, right? And today, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we launched one of the first, first trade finance banks that's entirely digital for a client in the Middle East. Because, you know, trade finance is this big, complicated topic where 600 pieces of paper attached to a single piece of uh, material where the supplier needs to get paid and the people who are buying need to be assured they're going to get delivery. You know, making it all digital essentially could literally change how the economy works in that context because of how seamlessly things go. And, you know, so I think we're constantly asking ourselves, how can we reimagine the future on behalf of our clients? Oh my God, we are so out of time. We are here with Nigel Vaz, CEO of Publicist Sapient. Twitter, you can follow him on V-A-Z-N-I-G-E-L. Always insightful inspirational and more more importantly infectious <laughs> this is like congratulations yeah, like, on the, the book optimism here you know congrats thank on you, the book. check it thank out you. everybody thank digital you, business you. transformation so thank you yeah thank you Nigel. thank you uh, you know a, a brilliant ceo who's you know working hard 
uh, along 20,000 some odd employees at, at, at his company to help companies transform. And again, every business is a digital, is a technology business. That's perhaps another big lesson from 2020. Speaking of uh, brilliant thought leaders and executives, our next guest is Michelle Hoff, a Chief Marketing Officer of User Testing. Michelle brings over 20 years of experience leading marketing and go-to-market strategies at high-tech companies such as Acton Software, the small company I know, Salesforce, and Oracle. <laughs> Gaining insights directly from customers and prospects has always been essential in Michelle's past roles, from leading product marketing and management teams to launching websites to marketing campaigns and much more. At user testing, Michelle is responsible for driving the go-to-market strategy, building the user testing brand, generating demand, and strengthening customer engagement and advocacy. You can follow uh, Michelle on Twitter at Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E-L-E underscore Huff, H-U-F-F. Welcome, Michelle, to the Shrek TV. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, welcome. And you're on one of our favorite topics, which is really about user experience, but you're talking about something more importantly, it's empathy and UX design, what it is and why is it important? What's going on and why so much so interest and why should CEOs care? And I think that's the important part. Like why should the C-suite be caring about empathy? It's so, you know, nice to have, it's so nice to have marketing leaders talk about empathy. No, I, mean, I just want to <laughs> just put that out there. It's, it's, it's awesome. great. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Because when you think about empathy, so many people think of it as like a touchy-feely concept. And um, you know, Business Solver did an interesting survey, um, and 91% of the CEOs um, believed empathy is directly linked to a company's financial performance, right? And and wow. right, and and you know, just like Nigel talked about, we're all becoming technical digital companies, and I think in this age, right, customers um, are more knowledgeable. Right. We have higher expectations. We have more choice. And really, it's it's coming to companies are having to to better understand customers feelings, their perspectives and having to make a, a better emotional connection with those brands. Right. Uh, and, and so how do you do that? Right. It is with empathy and, and more studies even show. Right. Eight out of 10 consumers will buy a company, uh, buy products from companies, from brands they trust. Right. And what do you mean from trust? And it's usually when when you're as a customer perceived as a person and not as a number. And you talked about marketing. Right. We always see people in cohorts and and uh, personas and, you know, large, you know, target markets. Right. And I think companies are really wanting to be seen as people and empathy, I think, is a huge part of that. I want to dive a little bit deeper on this question. Sorry, I'll just jump in. Is, is, but there are gaps, right? We see gaps in empathy. Is it something that's innate inside an organization? Is it something that's learned? Like, like can, can a company suddenly discover how to be more humanized in a digital world or humanize the digital experience? I mean, what, what are these things that people should be looking at? Yeah, well, you know, we uh, at user testing, we talk about the empathy gaps. So we, we talk about how a lot of surveys show that companies, um, I think it was a Cap Gemini, and said that like 75% of companies yep, said they're yep. customer centric. And then they actually interviewed their customers, and only 30% of them <laughs> said it was true. I know. And, and when you're in companies, I mean, I, when CEOs and the C-suite and companies say they're focused on the customer, you know, I, I believe it, right? They're investing, they're putting in a lot of resources. And um, I think some of the challenges is that over time, if you don't have the empathy, if you don't actually understand perspectives and audience and, and you, you, you start over time seeing all the data, 
right? Because I think when we think about customer experience, people are trying to figure out the identity of customers. You get a lot of data about behavior. Where are they clicking? What are they doing? You survey them, you know, like what's your MPS score? You know, did you like this experience or did you not? And at the end of the day, you're, you're creating these better experiences, but then with all the people who are coding and building these experiences, the ones who are writing the messaging, a lot of them are, are, are not actually interacting ever with customers. And so they have a hard time you know, always trying to figure out, is, is this actually how you make that emotional connection? Is this why they're saying yes versus no? And I think what we need to do is find ways to bring feedback into what people are designing and building and launching much earlier into the process, whether it's testing the idea in the first place to actually more iteratively to, um, bringing in the feedback while you're building something or bringing yes. in that feedback when you're actually going to market and how you're planning to launch and position and message everything. That's a, that's a great point. Uh, in other words, being deliberate in terms of designing empathy or making sure empathy is part of your guiding principle as you design products and services, as you design journey maps and how you engage with stakeholders at the moment of truth, because you know, the question I have, you know, I ran global uh, customer service support for a decade. So well-versed in CSAT and net promoter score and all the call center, you know, key performance indicators to that we use to make sure we're on the right path. And, and as a former chief marketing officer, you know, uh, dozens of marketing KPIs, but none of them really explicitly spoke to empathy. It may have talked to accelerating sales cycles, multi-touch attribution, total lifetime value of the customer, advocacy with NPS, and so on and so forth. But in terms of a precise way of you know asking customers who's the most empathetic brand, and if they said yours, you knew why, that 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 precision was missing. What can companies do to be more deliberate in terms of understanding that they're actually practicing empathy at every touch point and make adjustments as needed, and and also do it not just inside their sector, because it could be someone outside of your industry that's setting the bar for empathy. And, you know, you, you, it, so, so it's always important to have, you know, relative understanding of how you measure success. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, right, it's not just um, having the empathy, but really having that understanding and being able to take action on it. So just, you know, one thing that a lot of customers do is they'll, they'll, they'll call it like customer empathy hours or customer exposure hours. Right. So are you actually interacting, talking to, listening to your customers? And if not, like build that in. You can build in goals and say everyone, you know, actually I have that here at user testing where my team has a certain number of hours um, and interactions they need to have with customers and to be wow. listening to buyers and actually be listening to, to, wow. to existing customers. And then I think a second part is with all the digital touch points, most people don't actually know what the full customer experience looks like. They've never actually seen what it looks like from the customer's perspective, right? And, and it could be all the, the digital apps and services we're creating. It could be the communications. Um, but even in-person experiences now have so many digital touch points, yeah. right? We have customers where curbside pickup, right, from this last year was huge. <laughs> and what is that experience actually look like, right? It's not just the when they come to your car, it's when you're on the site and you're actually shopping. And then when you get there, what do you do? Like, are you confused? You know, do you have a little app that you press a button? And then so like, what does that look like? And so I think finding ways to be able to actually experience what your customers experience, see that journey can really help you suddenly go, that 
that's why everyone hates this experience, you know, because yeah, you've seen right. it. <laughs> and then you can actually get other people to buy in and want to fix it too. Cause I think it's 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 not just empathy um from one person, but building these experiences now take all these team efforts. And I think right. it's really trying to rally the, these entire teams around the experience of your customers and have them understand and empathize. Sure. And we had McKinsey, head of McKinsey Research uh, on our show several months ago. He said during the pandemic, 71% of U.S. consumers changed brands, uh, which, which yeah, was a number of that, that was, one. It, it was like rest in peace brand loyalty. Like if you couldn't show relevance, value, safety, accessibility, almost in real time, people switched. So to, oh. talking about the importance of customer experience, where we now have so many more choices and voices uh, where we don't have to tolerate a poor experience. We don't have to tolerate a brand that doesn't demonstrate empathy. We can just simply switch to another one. Um, and that's 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 got to be scary for companies. It is scary. Like, well, in some sense, it's opportunistic, right? The fact that someone's willing to switch yeah. gives you as a competitor an opportunity to capture yeah. more. But then if you can't hold them, <laughs> that is scary, right? You only kind of, the cost of acquiring one is, is you know, you need to get them to stay. And, you know, it, it's, I think what was so fascinating about last year is, I mean, like everything changed and, you know, we all watch industries go through digital transformation and be disrupted, right? And you kind of look at it on the sidelines, but last year it was like, we all went through it together, right? Like lots yeah. of empathy, I think for disruptive, you know, industries and suddenly everything that you thought you knew about your customer is changing, right? And, and like companies are <laughs> scrambling of like, I had a market and I don't think this is a market that's buying it. Like I need to suddenly go for an entirely new market space that my, like my business does not have an understanding around. So how do you quickly go find that? And then the way they're engaging with you totally changes. And so all the data that you have doesn't work as well. And so I think we just saw this collective um, moment where people realize the importance of needing to to really engage and, and better understand and talk to customers. For sure. You talk more than just engage when you talk about empathy, right? You talk about the you know feedback loops and the signal intelligence that comes back from places. Um, I, I was just, and not that I eat there a lot, but I do like them. I was running through the Chick-fil-A drive-through experience and going back to- Oh my God, me too. Today, today. Right. Some of the waffle fries. Yeah, yeah, no, today. But I got to, just quickly, the iPad that we're using malfunction. Uh, 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 person picks up the walkie-talkie, says my my uh, mobile uh, tablet is uh, hung. A person sprinted out of the store within literally ten seconds, gave her a new one, and I was so impressed that that have it just down like better than instant, everyone else. It's, Sorry, it's, I didn't mean to interrupt your story. No, no, no. Today, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> the training is so good at Chick-fil-A. I don't know who it is. We got to get the Chick-fil-A CMO out yeah. here. Who it is? <laughs> who runs products. I'm sorry to take up your time on this, but but it's the yeah. thing, right? The, the mobile experience is great. The the coupons great. You could order online, order by phone. They have a separate line for these things. The people are trained. They're smiling. They're friendly. If something goes wrong, the feedback is immediate. Back to what they Bob are not saying. a sponsor of Disrupt TV. They are not a sponsor. But we will take them as a sponsor. And you can pay us in food. No, I'm just <laughs> but 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 it's that kind of experience you're talking about. It's the empathy. It's the signal intelligence. It's the feedback loops that come back, and and that that really changes what's going on. And when we think about compressed 
accelerated digital transformation that's going here. Um, I mean, how are customers doing this without feedback? Like, how do, are people forgetting to design the feedback loops in or something? Because they've got the digital channel. They sound very empathetic. They're engaging. And then it drops off. It's like, what happened over here? You know? Well, I think it's part like one one is I mean, it's just what Nigel talked about, right? Like everyone's moving to agile. And if you think about, you know, like all these processes and everyone's trying to hurry and and kind of get to market quicker than ever. And so people, I think oftentimes just don't feel like they actually have the ability to bring it in in that cycle, right? They they just kind of quickly iterate and then release it to the market. And that's when you test um, and get the feedback, you know, in the real world. And there's a lot of risk in doing that, right? Like you can alienate, you can lose customers. And so I think the challenge is, you know, how do you get the feedback and start building it as a habit, right? Like build it into your process. And, you know, there's there's a lot of different tools. Obviously, user testing has some, but there's other tools where people just don't even like you don't wake up and, and think you have a problem. You know, you think, oh, if I'm going to get feedback, I might need to have a focus group and focus groups like take three months. So then it's going to be a long time. Like, I'll have three months, you know, this. totally right. And was, we actually did some commercials even um, with user testing and what like the, the timelines that agencies give you to give feedback is so small, right? They're like, hey, we have this whole thing and like, I'm giving it to you at nine o'clock and then by five, can you give me feedback? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, can, you know, I've got meetings all day. Can we do like midnight end of day? But but still, you know, how do you get real feedback? You know, and so when, when we ran ours, it was awesome because we were watching people literally react and you're thinking like, you're hoping the commercial's funny, <laughs> but like, like do we just laugh at it? Or are the people laugh at it? it so you know, it's like we're almost like watching popcorn, watching people like react to what we put out there, and then iterating on it. And so it really just changes the dynamic. I think when you can get feedback, so then when you launch it for the first time. You just feel more confident in those decisions. But you're also talking about how it's automated, right? The feedback, it's ambient, it's being collected without you knowing it. So it doesn't like, it's not intrusive or taking away some of your time, right? I mean, there's there's tools and techniques like that. Um, mm-hmm. Were there any certain commercials that you love that actually had great feedback or things like that that you're talking about or user experiences mm-hmm. that, that that are on your top list? So. Um yeah, like from from ones that we tested that uh, that didn't go over well. <laughs> no, no, went well, went well. We'll talk about the good ones. We don't want to put the ones that were bad. Yeah, yeah, no. So. Um, I, I mean, we we actually we we posted some of our little commercials with with feedback on there. Um, we had one where, uh, you know, it, it's uh, um, we were doing a little uh test around. It's like a funny one play on. We made up a word, lobster surprise, and and <laughs> we weren't quite sure if people would think it's really funny, but it it was. It was so great to watch people just burst out laughing, you That's know, awesome. at that. And and some people are like, I don't want to go look for like what lobster surprises, you know, and we, we behind the scenes, like, you know, um, created to make sure we had landing pages. But it was it was just wonderful because you looked at that and there was other ones were like, oh, because marketing, you're always trying to be bold. But like, where's that line? Right. Like, like what's bold? What what will people react to? And and um, and so you're like, did that cross it? And and so much is is how people read into how words are said, how the whole thing's presented. You could see people's confusion, like who is that person? And you're like, oh, maybe change the wardrobe a little bit, or like make them look more like this type of person. And those are all little things you can change along the way. So as a, as a New Englander, lobster surprise resonates with me. I don't even know the campaign, but you, you, <laughs> had, you had me at hello. You had me at hello. <laughs> 
my, my, my final question is, you know, uh, you know, when we talk about digital transformation, there's always conversations around automation. There's always, con well, it, could, it could be chatbots in the service organization. It could be lead scoring and marketing, opportunity management and sales, commerce, understanding abandoned shopping carts and sorting your mobile apps or your website to match your gender, your color preference, your size. So it's, it's becoming uh, frictionless. It's becoming much more automated. So as companies build their automation muscle, uh, not just aimed at improving efficiency, but you know, giving people time to be more creative by removing mundane tasks from their plates. You know, uh, how much do we need to keep reminding ourselves that the human insight? There's these magical moments, like you said, the smile. They lean in, their eyes open up. Uh, you know, that there has to be a balance there because you can't over automate and lose the soul or the essence of your brand promise. And so, can you talk to us about how do you bring that balance of Art and science, which you know every good CMO is, you know, doing that, putting art in the science and science into the art, not one or the other. To so talk to us how you guide your clients to make sure they don't lose that again, that 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 magic human touch. Yeah, no, I mean, like I think that's a great point because you know you're you're always trying to strike that balance of what things can you automate, what things can you scale. And then what parts do you want to remain like your differentiator? What things are you trying to like stand out? And, and then the challenge is anything of scale is like, let's take something and repeat it over and over and over again for a thousand times. Right? And, <laughs> and if it's something that's great, that's amazing. If it's something that's like, ah, like you're suddenly doing it a thousand times. Right. And, and the thing about marketing is, you know, over time, everyone sounds the same. Like, like you can see all the, the commercials and blog posts that came out towards the end of 2020, where everyone was saying every email reach out all sounded the same during these trying times, you know, like, yeah. and like all the intros, um, all the television, that somber piano music. Somber. Yeah, right. Like, we know the blog posts because people sense those patterns and then it starts feeling not as personal and as unique. So, how how, you, you will constantly have to be innovating and finding new ways to stand out and connect with people. And you you have to free up the time. So automate what you can so you can focus on that differentiator. Every yes. pandemic commercial looks the same. That was the best video of like the pandemic. Oh, I got it. That was amazing. <laughs> That was the brutal one. I remember that. So, oh wait, well, real quick, 30 seconds or less. Tell us what user testing does. I mean, we talked about all the great stuff you're thinking about. Uh, what, what is user testing? And I think a lot of people might know you already because you're, you've been in the business for a while, but what, what is it about? Yeah. I mean, I guess in a quick nutshell, we, we really help people experience what your customer experiences. So you can quickly target, figure whoever you want to talk to. And then we allow you to, to run them through a series of activities. So curbside pickup, you like, you know, go through the process, show me what it looks like. And then people um, on our panel hop on and they think out loud. They tell you what they like, what they don't like, where they're confused. And you literally see it from their perspective. And then we allow you to take all of those insights. And we do a lot of analytics, share highlight reels with others, integrate with other applications. Awesome. So. Yeah. Well, sign me up for any curbside pickup panels. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Anything food related. Anything food related. We're in. Bala and I will, will, will be there with, with Michelle Huff, CMO of User Testing. And you can follow her on Twitter at Michelle underscore Huff. And more importantly, catch her great insights and her blogs. So thanks a lot. Awesome. Thank you, Michelle. You're terrific. Thank you.
Yeah, it's so important to have that feedback loop because, you know, again, a lot of companies have blind spots and the more successful you become, the bigger your ego. So you think you have all the answers and sometimes you don't. Okay, our Hall of Fame uh, disruptor inductee <laughs> and one of uh, our, our, our favorite guests, Larry Digman, editor-in-chief of ZDNet and editorial director of ZDNet's sister site, Tech Republic. Uh, he was most recently executive uh, director of news and blogs at ZDNet. Larry's been covering technology in the business world since 1995. He's one of our absolute favorite guests. I think most appearances on Disrupt in the five-year history of our show. And he's a weekly multiple contributor on ZDNet. So you can find him on Twitter to read his exceptional post at L-D-I-G-N-A-N, L-Dignan. Welcome, Larry, to, welcome back, Larry, to Disrupt TV. Good to be here. I think I've just solved the vaccine issue. <laughs> you guys were talking about Chick-fil-A and I started getting hungry and then I started thinking, <laughs> I'm like, it's a military operation, the way they operate and they smile and make eye contact. I don't know. Oh, it's the that. best drive through experience bar The training program must be like two weeks. Um, but Chick-fil-A meets vaccine it's, testing, vaccine at distribution. Like, just take the Chick-fil-A operation, put them in charge of vaccine distribution, and we're good. We uh, have it solved. Uh, President Biden, if you hear us, uh, call yeah. now. Larry <laughs> Ding can help you. Uh, he's got it all worked out, and Michelle will do the user testing for you, and People Nigel will design the business transformation. All it's all on this show. Everything is here. All right, well, let's talk about Bitcoin. <laughs> let's talk about Bitcoin as a reserve asset, right? I mean, this is crazy. You got all these companies that are jumping in. They're saying, you know, we're going to choose Bitcoin because it actually devalues less than the dollar. I mean, that's the basic argument, but, but what do you think about this? What's going on? And you've been writing about all these companies it, so. it's a great argument as far as the dollar goes because the dollar is going to be depreciated because it's our only way out of our debt pickle right but yep 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 the thing that wakes me up not well not necessarily at night per se but the thing that gets me like wondering is how do you hedge bitcoin right so <laughs> you have companies like microstrategy they really went hot and heavy in bitcoin a while ago right so yeah. They've sort of they've yeah. averaged into it like I mean I consider MicroStrategy basically I guess they do enterprise software analytics BI whatever they used to do. Um, yeah. It's really a Bitcoin. It's a, they buy Bitcoin. That's basically what they do now. Ninety five percent of their balance sheet is Bitcoin. Ninety five percent. And and they were there. You know I guess I want to say eighteen months, two years ago. And you look at the stock chart and you see where they got in. And my God, it's brilliant, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, you look at companies like Overstock, like Overstock's very quirky, but they were they were early on the Bitcoin thing. And but they've taken a different approach. They're like actually starting blockchain businesses and stuff like that. The, the ones that make me wonder are the players like Tesla, Square, that yeah. bought a lot recently. Yeah. And, you know, is Bitcoin a bubble? No idea. Um, maybe it's not, I mean, I do know, I mean, the one thing good about Bitcoin is it's actually kind of based on supply and demand, go figure. Um, with a fixed supply. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You know, so, so a little bit better than GameStop stock, but go ahead. Yeah. 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 Um, The thing I just wonder about is if you're one of these, you know, late companies that are using this for a reserve currency. Now, you know, for most companies, it's it's probably 10 percent of the of their reserves or whatever, yeah. five. You know, I don't know what the numbers should be, but 
you know, if, if you're above 20, I'm probably getting a little worried. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing that these folks need to think about is just how do you hedge it? How do you hedge your risk? And right now it, it's kind of an immature asset and I don't really know how you hedge it. Like, do you hedge it with gold? Do you hedge it with, you know, the old, the old greenback isn't going to do it. Right. Yeah. Cause that's being devalued out the wazoo. So, Amen. so you got, you got to wonder. Right. And, and that's the part that I just kind of, you know, I think about, and, Hey, it's a night, you know, Yay, yay, Mr. Musk. Musk, you made what a billion in like a week. That's pretty Easy. cool. Yeah, um, uh, these are these are the numbers just for the audience that are listening into the conversation. Uh, as Larry said, Square five percent of their balance sheet is Bitcoin. Tesla is eight percent. That was a recent investment. One 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 point five billion dollar investment. I think they may have gotten it at, uh, at around a thirty range, and you know it was fifty eight last week. So Tesla's made over a billion in in just that eight percent investment. Um, and also some other numbers I think interesting for Bitcoin today's low was 44k uh, in, in last you know in February 58 was the high so almost a 1.1 trillion market cap I know it's not a company so market cap comparisons but at 1.1 it was the sixth largest market cap in the world only uh, uh, Apple Saudi Aramco Microsoft Amazon and Alphabet had a bigger value in terms of market cap uh, than, than Bitcoin just last week the average Bitcoin price for February last year was $8,800. The year before that was $3,800. Right now, the average Bitcoin price for 2021 will be 48K. So 3,800, 8,800, 48,000, um, if you just average the 2021 20, uh, February Bitcoin prices. And the last set of numbers, and I think it's interesting, I wrote, it's, I think my most popular ZDNet article this year was a summary of ARK Invest's view of Bitcoin. They talked about 15 big ideas in 2021 and uh, and Bitcoin fundamentals and futures was part of the 15 big ideas. They said if all of S&P 500 companies allocate just 1% of their cash to Bitcoin, Bitcoin price would increase by 40,000. If it's 10%, it'd be 400,000 added to the current price of Bitcoin. So we'd be trading at 450 right now. The other thing they said, as of November 2020, 60% of Bitcoin supply hadn't moved at all in a year. So there's long-term hold on, on Bitcoin. Because a lot of early investors can't find their keys. Yeah, yeah, right. There was definitely one that made the news. That's me. That's me. I've got like two coins sitting on a MacBook. I've got a two coins sitting on a MacBook Pro. I gotta go find that. It's like I gotta I gotta go figure out what the hell it is. I trust me. Like I'm a hundred thousand dollar MacBook. It's a hundred thousand dollar MacBook that I can't power up. This is the right. craziest, you know. That's, you're not alone. And I'll end with that. They said the hype around Bitcoin is somewhat contained. Bitcoin search interest is low relative to its history. In fact, the search history for Bitcoin 2020 to present is only 15% of its all-time high. So the hype seems to be contained. People are holding on to it. Maybe some like Ray have lost the key. <laughs> and uh, if folks it's, like it's Square, more than some, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, more than some. And if folks like Square, Tesla, MicroStrategy and others start to invest even 1% towards this cryptocurrency and whether it's Ethereum, Bitcoin, wherever it may be, we're looking at a trillion dollar market cap uh, I mean, we're past a trillion at 50k it's a trillion just to give yeah. the people an idea of like how big this is now right and, uh, i mean it, it certainly beats a stock buyback but, <laughs> yeah. no no if you've got a stock buyback merger you're better off in bitcoin you got a good point there larry so, yeah i mean but the, the thing that makes me you know the the cynic in me 
which is most of me, by the way. Um, I look at it and I just go, okay, that was a damn good trade. How do you hedge it? How do you keep those gains? Yeah. And if I'm a shareholder of these companies, that's probably one of my next questions, hmm. right? Like just how do you, how do you hold those gains? But, but, how do you Larry, but Larry, Larry, do you fundamentally agree with Jack Dorsey's comment? We believe the internet will have native currency. Um, and, and so uh, somewhat, I, I'm not, I'm not quite there yet. Um, but you know, I'm not necessarily in the business of creating, you know, whether some sector needs its own internet currency. Like, dude, just make money. Like, it's, <laughs> it's about the coin at the end of the day. Yep. So I look at it and I go, nice trade. Um, but I do think for this, for every company to say, okay, let's put in one percent, I, I think they're going to have to come up with a hedging strategy, right? They will. But you see, the even cities I mean, are doing Apple it. doing I mean, it. Microsoft is. is yeah. Is Johnson and Johnson doing it? Is Exxon going to say, you know, screw this oil thing? I'm just taking all my cash flow and buying Bitcoin. Actually, the short answer is yes, because what they can do is put into Bitcoin, get into Elon's trading network for a climate, you know, but what they're really doing for like carbon credits, climate trading, electrification. I mean, I think that's really part of the reason that he's doing into that. That's the, that's the hedge. But we even have mayors like Miami's Francis Suarez. Oh, I mean, he's like talking day. about municipal yeah. workers on and, and using Bitcoin as an option. And I know like, you know, you've been following that fall. I mean, talk a little about that. Yeah, I mean, we got NFL, NBA players demanding to get paid in Bitcoin. We have the mayor of Miami who just passed. You can, as an employee of the city of Miami, get paid in Bitcoin. And anybody who's tracking, you know, all the Robin Hood, you know, stock experts now, <laughs> when you're looking at 600% growth in a year, you're like, yeah, you know, instead of contributing from a 401k uh, and keeping my fingers crossed, I'm gonna write the Reddit. We're all stocked. We're all stocked pros. Well, yeah. I mean, lived through 2000 and 2008. You're just kind of like, yeah, okay, guys. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard for me to go all all in. Plus, I I have a few high school friends that are now flipping houses. So that is that is usually the sign of it's over. Um, I've quit the, my six-figure job to flip houses. Right. When, when, when the numb nuts you know from your childhood are flipping houses, and when you hear the gold and Bitcoin commercials on the radio, yeah. it's over. We've so, seen this movie before. You're right. We have exactly. seen this movie before. So, so the skeptic in me always wonders, but but it's a damn interesting trend to follow. I mean, it, it really is fascinating. So It really is. <laughs> Well, let's talk about other things. We've got other things on the docket. We've got some interesting earnings that are happening in the enterprise software world. Uh, we'll talk through a little bit about Dell, VMware, Workday, all reporting earnings on Thursday. Uh, I mean, what happened? I mean, they look good. So Yeah, so I'm not going to dive into the individual stories here, but the overarching trend between this last week was really busy for earnings. The big trend, when you look at transcripts, you listen to the calls, Everyone from Best Buy to Zoom to sales, you name them, all of them. They're all wondering, okay, so 2020 was great year due to COVID, right? Spending habits changed in my favor. And they're all looking at the first quarter and they're going, hmm, this is looking okay. And then they're all wondering, okay, so once this place gets vaccinated, what do, what do my, what do normalized patterns ultimately look like? And I've heard this from Shopify. Sure. I think Square mentioned it. Best Buy is really trying to figure it out because Best Buy is like, 
they had a, you know, they had a good year, a lot of curbside pickup, a lot of this, that, I mean, 40% of their business will be digital, is digital. Um, it'll be more digital. And everybody is just trying to figure out whether you're Home Depot, it doesn't matter who you are, you're trying to figure out what that consumer pattern shifts to. And honestly, I don't think anyone has a read on it. Like, I mean, I think the, the base story is we're all going to travel, we're all going to eat out, we're all going to drink our faces off at pubs. <laughs> I'm doing the ladder for sure. So we're buying ABM on, is me. As as on the ladder part, I need a pint and a bar, big time. Um, we had we had Paul Darty, who, as you know, at Accenture, right. leads about 300,000 of their employees. So he's responsible for all technology, all R&D, all of future stuff. And I mean, paid to think, which is kind of cool. And paid to think. Exactly. 300,000, but he's got direct reports to worry about that. Uh, he's absolutely paid to think. And But, you know, his thesis was that one of the trends is that uh, jobs are no longer, for most part, for most part, uh, it's, it's independent of uh, physical location and time. So the future of work will be hybrid. Uh, and, you know, it'll be, you know, some that are completely remote, some that'll spend maybe one or two days in the office and some that'll be in the office because they choose to be, not because they have to be like, you know, 2019, five days a week. But, um, but the cultural shift and the leadership's uh, assumption that you can't be productive unless you're in the office, those are gone. And, and so you're going to be, you're going to have no dependency in physical location and time. What are your thoughts about, about that? I think that's pretty accurate. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think it, whether you're a rank and file worker or a senior exec who actually got to see their kids in the last year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that would be me. Well, yeah, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. But I, I don't think anybody's going to go back to let's work in the office. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, one, just, just the, I guess, work-life integration will stay. Um, I think there's real numbers behind it. Like what CFO is going to say, hey, let's keep all these leases? None. <laughs> yeah. um, if, you're, if, you're a gym, if you're a gym owner and decides to get out a lease in a, in a basement of a large building, yeah. <laughs> right. And then, and, then, and then you're also looking at the retrofit, right? Like I could be vaccinated. Let's say, COVID, let's say COVID's wiped out completely. I hated the open floor plan in the first place. <laughs> I sat on somebody's lap while I'm working. No one, no one's going back to that. Oh, no. I wish I had shared space with Larry. I would love to see oh, him as he's writing I, the articles. I, I hated it. I'm listening. To, I'm listening to people make mortgages calls and arguing with boyfriends, and it was terrible. Um, it's just, it was ridiculous. It always was ridiculous. But just, just think, like, okay, so tomorrow we're all going back to the office. Yeah. Open floor plans don't work anymore. So, and if you're in a city like New York City, like, guess what? That takes a lot of construction. That takes a lot of union, takes a lot of expense, takes a lot of everything, right? It's time, permits, blah, blah, blah. That may take a year just to retrofit these things. So just the construction to get back to whatever this utopia workspace is gonna mean, means you're probably gonna be at home. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, I just look at it and go, eh. But, but do you see the death of density as a business model or, or will density come back? Right. Are there going to be places where that makes sense? I mean, for example, like concerts, would you still go to a concert? Um, would you want your office in a suburban environment? Um, would you share a ride with someone to the office? So uh, the concert thing, if it's outdoors and it's the Foo Fighters, then maybe. 
Austin City Limits. Uh, I'd like to see that come back. There seems like enough space there. Um, okay. But yeah, I'd still, uh, yeah. I'd still wonder about it. Right. Um, you know, that's so a, that's a decision. Me, my son and I used to go to a lot of Celtics games, and he asked right. me the other day, "Dad, when's the next time you're going to go to a game?" And I, really, you know, oh, wow, that's you know, a real it's point. indoor. You know, it's uh, and it really depends on you know, will we continue to. Uh, exercise social distancing where you know the Celtics is about 19,000 I think full capacity so maybe at 10,000 it feels well okay to go plus, uh, you know plus you're not nearly as good as my Sixers now so you know yeah but I digress but yeah I, I think those changes are really going to be more gener generational like I don't think anybody's been through this is going to be rushing into you know, we might do it for we might do it for a day or two, and then we're going to be freaked out and go back. Like, <laughs> fourteen so days. I, are you doing okay? Are you doing okay? Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, well, I'm not saying I'll be. Let's talk about vaccine management. Let's talk about vaccine management. That's a great point, right? Like all right. these new apps are popping up. All these companies are doing vaccine management. I mean, is it going to be is it going to be a no brainer to do it, or is it going to be a non issue in in three three years? I it's it's a fascinating enterprise space to look at. Because, you know, there, there's basically four or five big companies doing it now. Um, Honeywell put out their blueprint for that thing they were doing in North Carolina, which, you know, they basically outlined a tech stack. Um, so there's a blueprint for these things. There's a real software, real processes, all that. you got to connect a lot of data, a lot of moving parts. Um, I look at it as a category and say it's very promising. But I'm, I do wonder, I'm like, okay, so once we're done max, mass vaccinating, what what does this equate to? And I, I don't think it's a standalone category. I think it's an add-on that could probably just go away. Um, because if you look at vaccine management, you, if you are a workday customer, their vaccine management thing, it's, it's just a, it's an add-on, right? Maybe it's an add-on for a year and goes away, whatever. ServiceNow, very similar. Salesforce, very similar. So it, it gets to, I mean, I think what's interesting though is that these things popped up so fast. Yeah. So the innovation and, you know, adding that category was pretty impressive how fast it came about. What the future is of it? I have no idea. I mean, ultimately, I ask myself uh, when I board an airplane or I go to a conference, maybe it's Gartner Symposium with 10,000 or Ray's conference uh, at 500 or I'm staying at a hotel. Will I need to have a digital vaccine show proof? before I enter the plane, before I enter the concert venue, before I go to a basketball game. So just like a driver's license or credit card, will all of us, because I just shared a video from World Economic Forum in Israel. In Israel, right now, you have to show proof of vaccine in a digital format, and they use facial recognition and a bunch of technologies in gyms, restaurants, hotels. So there are certain countries that are now mandatory digital vaccine as part of entrance I, I, to. I, I think it's inevitable. Um, I think, I think it's going to go over like a lead balloon in a lot of, in a lot of the country. Um, and I think it's just going to depend on, do you want to get in this place or not? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah. you know, I mean, cause I, and also I think it's going to be chicken and egg too. Right. So I'm going to have a health passport, but for me to feel comfortable going someplace, I want to see everybody else's health passport. 
Yeah. Or, or at least know there's some procedure. Well, how do your health passport is, is actually more accurate than someone else's health passport? <laughs> right. Well, that's the other thing. Is it when, a forgery when, or not a forgery? What, are you going to do some Bitcoin? Are you yeah. just Bitcoin blockchain well, based? Also, whether it's, you know, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, Pfizer, the efficacy. And we don't really know. Do we need boosters with the derivatives and right. variants of the, uh, of the virus for a year from now? So is this an ongoing health management crisis, which will definitely make it a category? If, if it is, then you can, you can assume that. Our large companies are going to have to operate like healthcare companies. They're not chief healthcare officers that guide the, you know, the safety of their, because I think safety is now a brand pillar. Like if, if yes. you can't protect yes. your, you can't protect your stakeholders, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, good luck building trust and repeat business and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think the health passport is going to have to be here. Uh, right. Well, we didn't get we didn't get time to talk about 3D printers. Ah, we'll hit that next time. The 3D yeah, no market consolidation. But we're with Larry Dingen, editor in chief at ZDNet. And Val, you got one more thing. What are you saying? I'm just going to breaking news. When uh, Ray and I come out with the disrupt TV coin, we're going to issue one, <laughs> a few to you, Larry, as one of our favorite guests. So well, I, I don't even think I could take it. I mean, it's, it's ethically. I, I don't think I could ethically. Oh, no. Yeah, no, don't worry. worry. Don't worry. Like you, you get the coin, then you owe us money. It works really well. It's, it's a negative. Well, it's like a negative value coin, right? You, you have to watch these jokes. Remember the Dogecoin or Dogcoin? Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. But hey, I mean, it's like MMT. It's like a good meme. Uh, yeah, that was a stunt. That was very profitable. So, yeah. All right. Well, hey, thank you for sharing your Friday with us. We're gonna go. And, uh, thanks a lot for being on the show, Larry. And uh, we'll see you in the green room if you want to join us. So. All right, thank ciao. You. Thank you, Larry. All right. <laughs> uh, you know, he's 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 one of the smartest people that we have on our show because just because he has such a wide and deep yeah. understanding of everything in the textbook. Well, I guess if you're the editor in chief of ZDNet, that's part of your job, I suppose. <laughs> you're well read. <laughs> but it's it's just a you know, it's funny with him. We just like a day before decide what we want to talk about, and we can throw any topic at him. <laughs> and fill 20 minutes. Any topic. You, you know, just we need like an hour. It would be like an yeah, hour no, it's true, on, it's on a true, weekly I, basis, I, I, probably. I love the diversity. <laughs> it would be like uh, Red Ventures news or something. We'll just anything, pop up anything. and show up. You can literally <laughs> say, Larry, I want to talk about, you know, the 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 Mars Perseverance landing uh, and give us an update on that. And he'll be able to talk to us for 20 minutes. Pretty awesome. Anyway, that was episode, this was episode 225. We're getting close to 700 interviews over the five years that we've been on. We're at 691 interviews. We're nine. We're three episodes away from 700. But who's counting? Uh, next, uh, next, uh, next week is episode next two, week. <laughs> we have Mavi Zingoni, executive oh, wow. Managing director. That is amazing. Uh, yeah, of low carbon generation at Repsol. Repsol is a multi-billion-dollar company, largest energy producer in Spain, but they operate in 34 countries. And Mavi is one of the top executives at Repsol. But we're going to talk about you know, the future of energy. So believe it or not, our conversation is going to be about renewables and sustainable energy and so on and so forth. She's she's a pioneer in that space. John Meller, uh, CSO at Domo. Oh, great. Yes. Yeah, a former EVP at Adobe, another fantastic mind. And Bill Carr and Colin Breyer, co-founders of Working Backwards, authors of the book Working Backwards, which sometimes I feel like I do a lot. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, so anyway, Ray, um, Thoughts about today's show? Uh, a lot of uh, wisdom dropped on us in the past hour. 
Uh, we got some great conversations, digital, you know, talking about digital business transformation, thinking about what's happening in the world of UX empathy and where we go in the future and feedback. And of course, Larry, I mean, just getting the overall view of the show. Catch us every Friday, 11, p- 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And more importantly, um, oh, you got something? What do you want to say? One uh, more thing. I just want to share with our audience. First of all, thank you for watching. You know, our average viewership this year is climbing towards 40,000 views an episode. Uh, you know, so, you know, and, and, uh, it's happening on the weekends, weekdays. Um, so I just want to oh, yeah. say it's such an honor to know that, uh, we have an audience. Uh, and of course it's our guests. <laughs> it's not 99% guests, 1%, uh, Ray and I, it's, I'm, I'm the point one. <laughs> uh, uh, but, 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 uh, you know, I just want to say the numbers are just, uh, humbling. Uh, so thank you for watching. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for giving yeah. feedback. Last week I had a 60-minute correspondent share one of our episodes. <laughs> I'm like, wow. <laughs> so it's kind of cool. Uh, anyway, <laughs> thank yeah, you. Well, on we, behalf you of very thankful. Myself, yeah. yeah. And, you know, when Twitter spaces pop up, you might even see us there. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, thank you so much for being uh, with us. Have a great weekend. And more importantly, share the show, share it with everyone, you know, and uh, happy Friday. See you, everyone.